welcome back to episode 11 of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast. I'm Joe, here with my co-host John, and today we have a special episode where we will be going through some of the works that John has put together in the past couple of years, specifically focused on his published book in 2019, Mind Leap, The Key to Unlocking the Mind's Potential. Through this, we will ask a series of questions of what is the current state of neurotropic drug uses in the therapeutic environment, how these new chemicals have worked into our research and development, and how they are looking for the future and where we hope to go not only in the scientific community, but also as a culture. Firstly, a precursor and a note before we get into these questions, we do not condone the use of any illegal substances whatsoever, nor do we encourage people to experiment or use any sort of psychoactive drugs without providing uh, medical background and consulting with their medical physician. This is important because this episode is purely for the sake of uncovering new aspects of research and knowledge which impact our interactions as a community, as well as our individual reflections and in how we develop as a species. So with that, over to you, John, the book Mind Leap. Why did you decide to write this book? Yeah, I mean, well said. I mean, again, just to emphasize that point, uh, nowhere in this conversation do we condone any of the drug uses or applications of drugs in any way. I mean, just want to make sure we get that straight. And yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this topic because it's something that I don't really um, disclose too often on, on Mind Leap. I, I wrote it when I was 20. Um and it was really my first look at getting involved into pharmaceuticals, getting into drugs, understanding the relationship humans have with drugs. And so really my purpose for writing that book comes down to establishing for, for myself a understanding of our own relationship from an evolutionary perspective of humans with drugs. And, and that includes a whole range of, of, you know, psychedelic chemicals, LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, and all the other good ones. And then, you know, opioids like cocaine and other amphetamines like Adderall as well. And really it was just a guiding book on how we as humans have used these substances, how we've used nature as our own pantry to establish some new form of communication amongst ourselves as a species, perhaps, or to establish some new high that allows us to operate in a different insight pathway, perhaps. And, and so, I mean, you know, getting down into the weeds, when I, when I was writing the book, I, I wanted to establish a basic relationship with our understanding of the mind. So what are the ways that we interact with an understanding of the mind? How do we compartmentalize aspects of decision-making from the individual based on things like the environment, based on things like your genetics, your culture, and then obviously all the way back up to your generation. And I, I coined this term as, as our human thoughtware model in which the environment basically funnels information into our genetics, which then funnel information into our culture, and then finally into whatever current generation exists. And this is hopefully a way to first have a starting point, a framework for which we can intervene into the human's evolutionary process, right? You can imagine that changing and adapting elements in the environment will have all these whole host of causal effects on the genetic pathway and then subsequently the culture and then obviously the generation. 
Um, and, and so maybe I'll, I'll open this up for you and, and, and just kind of discuss a little bit about thought where, how, how the mind works in your, in your eyes, Joe, I'd be curious to see how, how you've perceived since you've read the book, how you've perceived this thought where model, um, how, how it kind of uncovers how we compute information, uh, just, just to kind of set that evolutionary framework of our own thought. Absolutely. So I thought that was a really interesting perspective and context that you used in describing how different substances and neurochemicals have acted as a way in which we upgrade our thoughtware. And what an incredible metaphor to use as we are so familiar with how hardware is developed and built. And then on top of that, we layer in software, which can continually be upgraded, but you can never upgrade your hardware without actually changing and exchanging out pieces. And in regard to the development of our minds in growth and in understanding and learning new perspectives, the use of thoughtware as a use of an output in the chemicals and experiences as the input. I thought that was an incredible metaphor. And now looking at how we approach the, the past decades and hundreds of years, looking at how the inputs of different types of chemicals, whether they be in our diets, in our environments, in our air, from the earth, how these have come into our common life have played an impact on how our brains have developed, how we have become accustomed to these new types of uh, transmitters and, and stimulants is a really important factor when trying to understand the growth and exponentiation of new types of mindsets, essentially. And these mindsets as a result of thoughtware, really give us an example and an approach of how we can come up with a framework for looking at how you can develop yourself right here and right now. And I'm curious from, from your perspective, how do you consider or approach this upgraded mindset from where we were to where we are? The, the, first, the first realization is to at least acknowledge that you are going to be limited by some value of growth. You're not going to achieve some infinite growth. And it's to realize that you're playing a game that spans more than just your own individual lifespan. We're playing an evolutionary game that spans an infinite time. And it's up for us, really, to keep that, that trend going as, as we keep our species alive. And so that's, that's step one, is, is to realize that you can only make so much difference within a limited amount of time. And that there are some attributes like the environment that you can't truly manipulate in a way that will change the brain of your own brain development within a lifespan. I mean, we're talking about really severe change, the environment to really, you know, like changing like oxygen concentrations in the atmosphere, for example, that would have a, a serious effect on the brain. And, and so it's like, you gotta, you gotta at least establish some limits with what you can do. Like in the end of the day, you are a participant in the environment. You are a participant in the economy of exchanging drugs, um, exogenously and endogenously, meaning drugs that are present in, in nature and present within the nature of yourself. And so there's this constant economy that going on. And, and as an economist in within your own biology, you can only exploit so much Right. And that's that's a really key thing to keep in mind. And so it's like, you know, taking these drugs, taking anything is not going to give you some new superpower is what I'm getting at. Really, these these drugs are more or less a way to alter a state of consciousness that is at least redeemable in a sense that allows you to open up new pathways for potential 
humans to organize and gather around those insights and ideas. And so that's the thing. It's like you're building up a framework of insight when you're using these new drugs. And and in a sense, you're building up a more varied perspective that can then be taken on by a a new group of individuals, the next generation, perhaps. And you're in the process developing this culture, right? You're not necessarily manipulating your genetics within a time span. You're not, you know, doing gene editing by taking uh, some Adderall, right? Or whatever. You're not changing the environment in that sense. So we have to first establish at what level we're in making an influence in the individual. We're making an influence on the individual in a sense that whatever insights come, whatever actions come out of that individual will then influence the next set of culture, uh, whatever, you know, generation has yet to be coming. And so that's something to really keep important is that you're not going to be making the level of change perhaps that you'd ideally like to see within your own lifetime, but rather you will over a thousand years. Um, with that being said, it does open up a conversation as to, well, how long have we been using drugs in a society? Because like I said, this is a long time span. And if we're looking at a really long time span and we're looking at drugs specifically, well, we can identify that there maybe there's a big correlation between how long we've been using drugs and how much change humans have seen within their own psychology. And, you know, I mean... This is a really heavily debated topic as to when humans first started taking drugs for the purpose not of nutrition, but for the purpose of altering their psychology in a way that is harmonious with some tribal social entity or so forth. And, you know, maybe maybe we can open this up here a little bit and just kind of discuss um, some reasonings for why you would even want to take a drug. So I'll I'll let you kind of jump on this one. I'd be curious to see, you know, if I am this primitive organism, what is the the real goal of of taking a drug, uh, of of using a resource in in, in the atmosphere, just just at a basic level, you know? Definitely. So something that you kind of touched on earlier was the, the term altered states of consciousness. And firstly, before we get into my perspective on that, I was wondering if you could define for the listeners, what is an altered state of consciousness? Mm, yeah. An altered state of consciousness is simply a contrast between your, what you would define as a sober mindset or, or, or a non-drug mediated. And, and this is where it gets tough because look, you're, you're going to be eating food and that food will always influence your psychology. But because the food itself has some nutritional value to it, we're kind of eliminating those off as drugs. And so I wouldn't say eating a sweet potato, for example, gives you that altered state of consciousness. It's not intense enough of a change in your psychology to actually recognize it as, as, a, as a psychotropic or a mind-altering chemical, perhaps. Um, so altered state of consciousness is really then anything that is created from some psychotropic. In other words, non-food item in this case. Um, and and that's, a, that's a pretty big big border because it's, it's very, very tough sometimes to establish whether or not some herb has a nutritional value over its, uh, psychology altering, uh, abilities and properties or whatever. And so that's what I mean by altered state of consciousness is any entity that when taken will give you a different sensory orientation, maybe is another way to say it is in, I, I perceive reality this way with my five senses when I am sober. And then when I put this entity in my body, now my senses are picking up some new type of content in reality with my same five senses, right? No, the, the, the tools you have have not changed the way those tools interpret reality have. And that's the difference between the, the, two, the altered state of consciousness. I think that's really, really cool because when we 
look at the perspective of altered states of consciousness and the framework, or at least the mindset that you are capable of, of utilizing in order to address history, your personal development, personal problems, or at least different frameworks on how we look at um, mental health or even the broader scope of just neuroscience in general, you have an active framework and you have an inactive or subconscious framework in which you can address personally these problems and how the spotlight is shed on where the roots metaphorically or hypothetically are coming from. And when we look at the research and the literature that is coming from different types of nootropics or uh, chemicals that, that proceed to provide an altered state of consciousness, the, the research and reports are, are signifying that it expands or at least enlightens this greater perspective in which people are achieving a quote altered state of consciousness, which allows them to pull into the field of vision or or address these problems more forthrightly and how they are impacting one's own life and experiences. And I think if we go back in history and, and look, look to the original question, which is why different species or organisms would want to achieve an altered state of consciousness, or at least utilize different tools that exist in nature to address these, it is probably in the biological context of problem-solving capability and how we can not only internally or introspectively address our problem-solving capabilities within our own minds, but then externally address the problem-solving capabilities we need in order to survive and procreate from a large uh, species context. And when we look at the different tools available to us on our tool belt, we have obviously a limited number and taking any one of these substances or, or caffeine, which is probably the most relatable one to, to everyone out there. It's such a widely used chemical that is a, a neurochemical psychoactive compound, caffeine. And we have socially widely accepted the use of this as a productivity tool. And everyone knows that you can develop a tolerance and if used it can be abused. But when we look at the spectrum of how we begin using this as a productivity tool to add or at least amplify one of the tools on our kit or on our tool belt, it is probably used in the context of wanting to increase performance or increase capabilities or at least an analytical capabilities on our spectrum of looking at our, our plate of problems. And it's it's so fascinating to think about our brain's own capability for having the receptors or at least the mechanisms to respond to these chemicals in nature. If you eat you know different types of foods, most often they will not have um, psychoactive or neurological effects in your mind. But there are some that readily exist that you, that you can ingest or intake in different ways that do have an effect and impact on your brain. And as you were saying earlier, the baseline for where we can grow versus where we can we can actually adapt to taking something like you referred to Adderall or caffeine or or nicotine, many of the drugs that are widely known in society, you're not going to instantaneously have mass growth within your mind, right? It's not going to change the overall brain matter that you have to any substantial scale. But in the inverse of that, when we look at the high levels of abuse with alcohol or cocaine or different narcotics or opiates, and we actually look at the analytical brain scans of these individuals, you can very clearly see a reduction in active brain matter in the abuse of these different chemicals. So there is a fine equilibrium or at least a boundaries and with, in with which there is a usability factor, it seems, rather than an abusive factor and detrimental. So there is a fine line there, which we have yet to 
quantitatively understand. Yeah. And, and just kind of backing up a little bit. Yes, totally on the same page here. It's There is this usability ratio to adverse effects, perhaps. And we have to we have to take a step back and at least establish some basic relationship that we have with drugs, right? And so we, we go all the way back, back back to when humans really were at danger with their environment, right? This is this is kind of the use case for when these drugs really become present. And it's like, okay, say I live in a jungle and there's all these snakes everywhere, right? Humans' biggest fear, because we used to live in trees, right? As monkeys or whatever, primates. And so we have all these snakes that are constantly, you know, trying to bite us, trying to inject venom, trying to get us off their trees, right? And so we're like, okay, well, I, I can't be awake all the time looking at these damn snakes. So what do I do? I start munching some leaves and see what happens, right? Turns out I eat some of these leaves and uh, it produces a little bit of sap on the edges of the tips of the leaves. And so then when I get that, what I find is that I, I've actually taken maybe some kind of like salvinorin, right? Which is going to basically kind of numb me, calm me, and it's going to actually bring some alertness or whatever, right? And I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of chemicals out there in, in nature that you can suck on the leaves and it'll make you a little bit more alert, right? But that's the use case, right? You have all these snakes. You can't stay awake all the time. You're limited by your sleep faculties and your own uh, chemicals that are that are guiding how you feel and how how tired or awake you are. So you take these chemicals, you become a little bit more alert. Okay, boom, you, you live on a little bit longer because someone else got eaten by the snake and you didn't because you were a little bit more alert. Okay, fast forward, right? We go through all this process, this motion of, of trying to figure out how to optimize our relationship with with these you know leaves or in, in this case right because we weren't extracting them from from we didn't have any knowledge of chemistry back then right and so it's like how do we then build a abuse case well it's like well it depends on how many snakes are in the, your environment right and so you can put yourself into a environment with lots of snakes and then you're going to probably develop an abuse to that 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 leaf that you found in there in, in nature and right there because of your own inability to recognize the the danger of snakes or whatever, you're going to start to fall back and use the drug as a crutch to help you survive. Right. And here, right, right in here, we, we develop an abusive relationship and this stems back, you know, millions, well, hundreds of thousands of years ago, really. And, and so like, that's, that's where it comes into it. It's like, we keep using because when we use it, we can basically ignore our own body's signals. And if you're in that prop, if you're in that process of ignoring your own body's signals to then take some drug to get an effect, you are what I would call an addicted person to that chemical. And whether or not that's keeping you alive is a different question. The, the, the real thing here is how do we, you know, use, eventually use these drugs in a way that actually can harm us um, more than it helps us. And I think that's where the conversation, at least at some level, begins um, when, it, when it comes to deciphering this, this fabric of so many different chemicals. And... You know, when you look at the reasons you use alcohol, as you're saying, well, as you become addicted to alcohol, a, a big reason that alcohol is so popular is because it, it it suppresses our fear responses in our amygdala, and it also suppresses our cognitive responses. And as you were saying, you know, sometimes we take these drugs to increase performance. Well, that's not true with alcohol. Alcohol is actually to numb the desire for increasing in performance. And uh, the more a nation or perhaps a society or culture becomes obsessed with the idea of performance, the more you can actually see that that society might become addicted to chemicals that kind of defocus the, the, the value of performing at a higher level, hence alcohol. And that's, that's, that's its placement. 
And, and, and so that's that's kind of the whole the whole controversy here between between how we use drugs in a society. It's it's this contextual environment, right? Is there too many snakes, right? And, or in the and in the case of, of of modern day, is there just too much? you know, work being done that's just kind of devalued in a sense because there's so many hyper performance metrics associated with it. And so how can we then put a drug in place without it becoming a crutch, right? How do we basically use a drug in a way that it doesn't stimulate our rewards so that we are constantly thinking of that drug when some context or situation presents itself where we might actually need it? In other words, how do we learn to be better without relying on something that kind of replaces the need to learn it in the first place. So this is the age old question now, because this is something that is actively discussed and taught and lectured and, and researched is how do we mitigate the risks and harms of addiction? Because so many of these chemicals and processes are available to us in everyday life. When we look at the, the sales of cigarettes for nicotine, when we look at the sales of alcohol for, for both recreation and pleasure, when we, when we see the, the, the scale of how often these are used, it does beg the question, how do we educate and mitigate the risks that come with these? Because as we all know, in, in early elementary school and middle school, there were education classes like the DARE program that discouraged the use of substances and alcohol. And then when we look at you know, modern, uh, modern society, as, as more of these come into the playing field of, of things that are accessible, how do you find this equilibrium and balance the safe accessibility, or at least the, the, the functional accessibility of these substances versus the destructive uh, aspect of these substances? And this is really, really challenging because we have to have such a, a broad, but also individualistic approach of how we either prescribe or allot these chemicals to people and, and quantitatively understand the need versus want based aspect of them. And then when we further look at how we continue to grow the, the culture, as you were saying, how a culture adopts and uses these chemicals, it makes me wonder, you know, how did we get to this point today, especially in some of the newer chemicals, like you mentioned in the, in the psychedelic field, which are vastly coming into research and hospitals and, and new uh, organizations now, why are these becoming popular all of a sudden, or what is this renaissance that's happening um, within this field? The idea as far as the psychedelic renaissance basically comes from the idea that pharmaceutical in, in the modern world has failed us and giving us drugs that we can use to actually better ourselves. So the, the problem, right, lies, uh, you can look at the opioid market, for example, to identify where the problem really is. You give a bunch of people who are in pain a chemical that basically makes them forget about that pain, well, then they're not actually solving any of their problems, right? Because while they're on the drug, they're just forgetting about that pain. When they're not on the drug, the pain's going to come right back. And they're going to be like, well, how the hell do I get off this pain, right? So you're not solving their, their ability to at least cope with some pain. So that's a failing, right? It's a treatment, not a cure. And, and so the, the claims that come with psychedelics is more so of a line of it's a cure type drug rather than a treatment type drug. And, and the reason it's a cure type drug rather than treatment drug is because it doesn't operate in a direct fashion that, that, you know, it doesn't suppress a specific neural circuitry that is causing the problem. Right. And so it's not directly related. Instead, it, op it operates in somewhat of a desynchronized fashion. It operates by increasing uh, to high levels neuroplasticity within the brain, which uh, if you don't know what neuroplasticity is, it's basically the way that our brain operates when it's 
doing new types of learning. So right there is a whole different different ball game for how drugs can be used. Instead of using a drug to give you the solution, rather you give your 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 person the drug so that they can learn the solution at a higher level and a, and a faster rate. Because that's the whole thing. It's like I have a limited amount of time to learn these skill sets, and so how do I basically just increase my ability to learn how to treat myself? Uh, and, and so that's kind of where where psychedelics enter the game. Is is they're all very neuroplastic agents. They're they're going to highly activate neuroplasticity, and you're going to see if you look at uh, MRI MRI machines, you're going to see all of this crazy activity associations within the brain, and a lot of it's random. And, and that being said, it's it's extremely important that. You understand that learning, you can use that learning environment to basically input false ideas. And so this is then where you find people that have challenging trips, as I call it. Some people call it bad trips, but I call it challenging, right? It's, 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 you're going to learn something regardless in your challenging trip. A bad trip might infer that you're not going to learn anything out of it. But a challenging trip is something where you're, you're confronted with a bunch of these obstacles, and you have to make a decision that is something likely uncomfortable in, in a way that you've never had to make them before. And what you're doing is, is literally learning at an accelerated rate about yourself. And you can, you can falsely delude yourself into believing things that are completely not true about yourself. And this is how you can kind of go into kind of crazy states. You can believe you know, that you're something that you're not and, and then basically destroy a bunch of relationships while you're on these chemicals. Right, because you're in this accelerated form of learning. Oh, I learned that this, 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 and this, and like, oh, it turns out after learning all this stuff about myself, that this person is actually terrible, evil to me. It's like, well, calm down, right? Let's take a step back and and let's let's be aware that you, when you're in this hyperactivated neural uh, learning network, that you're going to be coming to a lot of conclusions, right? And it's it's really important to guide that learning process to facilitate it, just like an educator. And so that's kind of the promises that come with psychedelics. I would say is that they have a indirect solution for a long-term solution rather than a short-term solution here. Um, so yeah, if you want to just jump in right there. Definitely. So I think it's, it is really fascinating to hear what the new research and, and scientific advancements are, um, are, are coming from these new chemicals. And I think as you were saying, the, the renaissance that's coming in within our culture now as somewhat of a, an answer or at least a result from the questions that we've been searching for for so long do come with a handful of, of concerns that we need to disprove as well. And one of them being, uh, I think one of the main ones is the, the fear or the worry of how you quoted a bad trip, which can also be stated as drug-induced psychosis. And depending on the individual mental state of the millions of people out there who even could be considered for um, administration of any of these drugs, there has to be so many other quantitative um essentially scientific markers that have to be considered before administering something like this. Because as research currently has shown, people who, who have been diagnosed or suffer from um, bipolar disorders or schizophrenia or other types of induced psychosis uh, should not and probably could not be included in the research because it's just so variable and possibly dangerous that um, there is so much unknown that can come from this. You know, along with the positives that we are hoping for and, and aiming for in clinical trials and research, it is interesting to know that there is such a spectrum. And I think hopefully once, once more of these quantitative answers come into the research and the light, there will be different types of approaches to these questions and um, hopefully answers to the skepticism and at least the, the fears that come from the regulatory perspective of creating a therapeutic and scientific environment where these chemicals could be used as 
as hopefully life-changing medicines. Right, right. And and this is this is the the inherent contrast though within the psychedelic industry. There are some people that interpret this neuroplastic environment that it induces as something that can be applied to every single treatment outcome case, treatment indication, meaning that you can have essentially some kind of God molecule and that God molecule can then be used for a variety of different purposes, right? It's a, it's a wonder drug, right? And so you can use it for anything. And from a pharmaceutical perspective, this is just magic and that you don't have to go through any R and D pathways. You can just use that same drug for, for really any uh, psychology state. And I, I, I want to put that to rest because that's not necessarily true. There are are plenty of psychedelics out there that need a lot of work that have a lot of adverse effects uh, adverse effects associated with them including nausea and some borderline schizophrenic areas and so forth and so i want to convince you really quickly that the current psychedelics are not the end-all be-all chemical to solve all of your issues. There's lots of chemicals out there and there's lots of manipulations to these molecules themselves that need to be made in order to really tap into that next frontier of using psychedelics effectively without promoting a lot of the adverse reactions that you see with sun psychedelics. And this is what's been going on right now throughout the psychedelic industry, but there are still people that and I mean, I'm not going to try to point any fingers, but there's a lot of nonprofit organizations, I will tell you, that that work in a way that overly God glorifies uh, a chemical. A lot of times it's DMT, um, dimethyltryptamine, which is... Um, usually something you extract from a uh, bark of a tree and DMT is, is a 10 minute trip experience if you've heard it before. But a lot of the times, again, it, it's held as this kind of false divine element in which once you take it, you're going to be cured from all of your symptoms of the world and in and your life. And that's just not true. That's not true. You can convince yourself of that true if that's true and that's fine. You can be deluded and that's totally cool. But that's just not how these things really work. Well, Again, I mean it's it's not totally cool. Like those are things that we should not be, yeah, be exactly. aiming for or or hoping for as a result in any case. And and when these these perceptions come around when we look at the uses that are extremely different, or at least the outcomes that are extremely different from these different molecules. As you just mentioned, it can be derived from the bark of a tree, which is incredibly astounding to me that these, these compounds do exist naturally within nature in, in certain contexts. And when looking at um, our brain's capacity to recognize these and also produce vastly different experiences as have been reported in, in so many different journals and um, some scientifically uh, peer-reviewed papers, it, it really makes me wonder and question how, how many other altered states of consciousness exist and how large this spectrum actually is and what different um, possibilities of, of com combinatorics could exist for neurochemicals and experiences within the mind. Mm -hmm. And while that is um, somewhat of a dangerous slope and in and, and wondering how the brain will react in different ways, obviously um, I'm not one to want to experiment blindly or wildly in any way, but if there's a quantitative way to mimic or at least experiment on a, a safe sort of way it would be that that is my hope for for the future and where th this research tends to go yeah it's really tough because like you like you said you can't really just experiment on humans with these these drugs that's just completely unethical especially since you don't know the adverse effects but there is a lot of research being done on on other mammalians and other other types of organisms that have similar neurochemical pathways that we have uh the challenge though is in is in translating those neurochemical effects to the human because that's what we care about right is treating humans and 
the real key thing to keep in mind with psychedelics is that we are in the beginning of unearthing something that many societies have tried to do. Uh, now it's just on a globalized scale. And, and what I mean by that is that we've been using these substances for many, many thousands of years and they're not new. They're not, it's not like some crazy, like, where did this come from? It's like, no, no, no. If you go around the world, you'll find lots of these little tribal communities using these chemicals. They use it for guiding people to some new spiritual planes. They'll, they'll do it to treat health. They'll do it for some, you know, productivity gains. If you look in California, you see a bunch of people doing microdosing, for example. Um, and, and, and the, the key thing is that there's a lot of knowledge about these things that can be unearthed in these tribal communities. And oftentimes it's, it's very tough because there is no standards of care, like in a healthcare organization when you're looking at it and it's like, you know, how do you, how do you commercialize a tribal little niche community? You don't, right? It's what makes it a powerful experience is in being in this niche protected, non-commercial atmosphere. And, and that's, one of the hardest things to keep in mind with these chemicals is just how context driven it is. Like, do you feel safe? Like when you're taking the drug, that's a super important, chem uh, uh, super important attribute of the experience itself. And, and keeping in mind that all the different elements that prefaced who you were in that moment are going to affect your psychedelic trip. And so that's kind of how I'd like to end this is just understanding that there is a responsibility that needs to be maintained when using these types of chemicals if you are going to use it. And again, we do not condone here on the show uh, any of these chemicals, but as we'll find out, I think in the next episode here, we're going to go a little bit more in depth onto at least what types of chemicals and what those types of altered states of consciousness really are and, you know, kind of extract some of the bits of, of value from that experiential fabric of altered states of consciousness. So. Absolutely. And I think one, one final question that I have for you is if people were to read your book and hopefully they do, what is the takeaway piece of advice or information or wisdom that you hope they depart with? Mm. Yeah. The, the key insight that I hope people think about when they're reading the book is you are only limited by your perceptions of the reality. Um, and I mean that not in a, in a day, like that doesn't, that doesn't mean, you know, jump off a cliff cause you can now believe you can fly. That doesn't, that's not what that means. It means that be aware that there are a lot of elements at play that constitute who you are and how you make decisions in your life. And that these are simply abstract perceptions that you've generated yourself. And that really I'm providing a tool set in this case, a set of drugs that you can use to at least gain some awareness of those abstract somewhat arbitrary, at least from an outside perspective, uh, uh, concepts that you, that you bind yourself to as, as principles for how you want to live your life and so forth. But again, these are just abstractions. There's no real, uh, concrete reason that you could prove that your system of, of living is better than another's. Uh, and that's a challenge, right? Is, is being uh, willing to at least experiment. I mean, the one example I can use to kind of explain the philosophy here is that, you could spend your entire life, and I think we've, we've talked about this in the podcast before, but you could spend your entire life trying to figure out exactly doing, uh, doing what would fit you the best, right? Maybe, maybe by the time you figure it out, you're 60 years old, but you're 60 years old now and you've spent your entire life trying to figure out what you want to do. And now that you've figured it out, you only have so much time left. On the other side of the coin, you can just start experimenting with things. And eventually through process and error, chances are you'll actually come to 
figuring out what it is that that really makes you tick quicker by the time you're 30 now because just through just through you know brute trial and error instead of just meticulously sitting back and thinking about it you know just through brute trial and error you've come to figure out exactly what fits you best and what suits you best and i i hope the book at least provides a medium for which you can conduct that experimentation process in a safe and healthy and effective and responsible way Absolutely. And if someone wanted to find it, where would they go to look for it? You can find it on Amazon. Just look up Mind Leap, the key to unlocking the mind's potential. Awesome. Yeah. And, and that, that concludes, I think, today's episode. So thank you so much for uh, joining me on my little journey through my book and uh, Joe for sitting there patiently, um, kind of guiding me through the process of how I wrote the book. But yeah, that concludes episode 11. Thanks, everyone. If you made it this far into the podcast and want to hear more content, please consider following us on Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube and sharing today's podcast link with your close friends. We hope this podcast incites you to start some interesting conversations and expand on some of the ideas we've discussed. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast, a podcast aimed at unveiling the certainly uncertain relationships between some of the most complex systems known to man.